0: So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to pray and ask for God's help and understanding. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. to believe this passage, to understand it, yes. But Lord, I know that this digs deep into the root of unbelief in our hearts. So Lord, help us, help us to know what we should be believing in this passage, how we should be understanding it, and then give us faith to believe and to trust you that you are true and that you are good, that you are our good Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's just name this for what it is. Like a lot of, a lot of the passages in the Sermon on the Mount are, are uncomfortable. And this is one especially for um, those of you who grew up kind of in the Baptist church. Like we, are, we have Baptist roots here. We are Baptistic in our faith and our doctrine. And so we are um, characterized most commonly and accurately probably as Baptist. And in that, this is a really difficult passage because Baptists are supposed to not worry about this kind of thing, like asking for things and asking like anything that we wish and all this stuff. Like, no, we're, we're good. We're content. We're fine. We we'll just keep our head down and keep plowing on till heaven, Right. And then some of you grew up in traditions where, man, you quote this all the time. You're just calling out all the time, like, yeah, ask whatever you want, as long as you ask in faith, as long as you ask for, like, good things. I mean, it was an uncomfortable passage for me, and I grew up in a church where both, I heard both of these things. And so sometimes it was in support of something that would kind of border on a prosperity gospel, that as long as you had enough faith, whatever you ask, whatever you ask, whatever you want, God's going to give it to you. And then I would hear from the other side of pushing back and saying, well, no, 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 it's only if you ask for the right things in the right way. And so then I would constantly be checking my motives. And I'd be like, okay, well, am I asking with the right heart? Am I asking for the right thing? Well, what if this isn't the right thing? What if I should ask for a different thing? And every time I would read this passage and come across it, the same thoughts would enter my mind. Asking what will be given to me. Like, seek and I'll find what? Where am I supposed to be knocking? And where did a serpent come into all of this? It's very confusing. It's very difficult. So what do we do? Do we fall into the ditch of just prosperity gospel? And as long as you have enough faith, everything will be fine. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and everything until Jesus returns. I don't think It's that. We fall in the other ditch, so we just get paralyzed and we're just constantly questioning everything that we're asking and trying to filter and edit our requests before God because what if we ask for the wrong thing or in the wrong way? For me and my journey, it all came back to just don't ask for anything. Just, just like the, the quest, constantly questioning my own motives. Ask for things for other people, but just... I'm just not going to ask for anything because who knows? Like, what do I know anyway? Probably going to ask with the wrong heart. Probably ask for the wrong thing. I don't want to get the wrong thing. And so I just, it paralyzed me. And I can't imagine that that's what Jesus is going for here. I can't imagine that his aim is to paralyze us in such a way that we would just say, ah, maybe it's better. It's better to just kind of hedge my bets. Given what he's already said, it seems pretty clear his aim is not to paint God as some kind of stingy gatekeeper or genie who's trying to catch us or trap us, who's already really, by the way, given us more than enough. But if we just uttered the right words or asked for the right thing and the right timing, kind of like many of us learn to do with one of our parents, the right parent, the right timing if we just do that, then maybe we could get something from God. That's a big problem. One of the reasons it's a big problem is because consistently, when I talk to people who've left the faith, or left whatever faith they had growing up, it's often traced back to not receiving what they asked for, and thus concluding that God either must not be there, or he must not be good, or I must not be good enough. Too often, the common refrain rings in conversations I have around the community or in my office. Where, where was God when I asked for my mom to be healed and she still died? Where was God when I asked him to protect me as a child and adults still hurt me? Where was God when I lost my job? Where was God when my marriage fell apart? Where was God when my parents' marriage fell apart? So, what do we do? I mean, the reality is that we don't always ask for good things. And the reality is that we don't always ask in faith. But both of those things come back to the most important part of this passage. Ultimately, it's not about what you're asking for or how you're asking, it's about who you're asking. And who you believe him to be. I'm going to say it again. It's not so much about what we ask for or how we ask as it is about what those things reveal about what we believe about who we're asking. So in the context of this passage, Jesus seems to be saying that if you ask for the kingdom and you ask in faith, then you'll receive it. And that's true, but the root of desiring the kingdom is seeing and desiring the king. And the root of our faith is his faithfulness. So my point is not to find a happy medium between prosperity gospel and just asking for everything and just trusting, like, if I just believe enough, then God will give this to me. And then being stingy with our prayers and kind of protecting ourselves and just not asking for anything. I don't want to find a happy medium to that, My point is that all of those ditches and all of those options are completely underselling what Jesus is actually offering here. Turns out that no matter which of those ditches we fall into, our prayers are too small. So here's the big idea. If we understood who we were approaching and what he was offering, we would ask for all that we desire and receive more than we could ever imagine. Because believing who God is changes what we ask for and how we ask for it. Believing who God is changes what we ask for. So sometimes we just ask for wrong things. Like sometimes that's just the reality. Ultimately, we want what we want when we want it. And when God doesn't give us what we want when we want it, we get mad. And when I say it out loud, like it it sounds pretty terrible, right? Pretty petty. But I think like we've all been there, right? We all certainly know what it's like to kind of confront the reality that we're still kind of a petulant child at heart sometimes. We just, we want what we want when we want it. And the reality is that you and I, we don't actually know even what's best for us. Just like a child. And Jesus uses this imagery for a real reason, that we are children of God. Now, I don't know if you're offended by how often the Bible refers to us as children, but it's fitting God is our father, we are his children. Sometimes, I think we we like to think, well, yeah, we're his children, but we're like grown adult children, like have a career and kind of know what we're doing, and God's like our aging father, that yeah, he's got some wisdom over there, but come on, let me, I gotta take care of my day-to-day, I know what I'm doing here. And that's kind of the image sometimes that we have of God. We don't like to think of ourselves like toddlers. But when you think about that dynamic, which one do you think is more fitting? Are we, in relationship to God, are we more like the adult child who kinda is doing their own thing and firing on all cylinders and still can gather a little bit of helpful advice? Or are we more like the helpless toddler who wouldn't even be able to really take care of himself if our parents weren't around? See, when the Bible refers to us as little children, it's because we're little children. And just like little children, we don't always know what is best. I mean, think if the saying was flipped. What if, what if the saying was, well, which one of you, if your child asked you for a serpent, would give it to him? Like, which one of you would, if your child asked for a poisonous snake would give it to them. I had to change that to a poisonous, venomous snake that's going to kill them because some of you are like, I'd totally give that to my, yeah, my kids ask me all the time for a snake. Like, can I have that snake? Yeah, I'm not talking about that. Which one of you, if your toddler asked for a loaded gun, would give it to him? You wouldn't. If you who are evil know better than to give bad things and destructive things to your children, how much more will God protect you? from receiving bad things. And the problem is that we often don't think, I mean, most of us would say like, well, if I knew I was asking for bad things, then I'd stop doing that. But but that's the whole point is we don't see that. Just like a child doesn't actually ask for something that they think will destroy them, they think they can handle it. They think that it's good. They think that they'll enjoy it. They think that you're holding out on them by not letting them play with that thing or touch that thing. So for us, we ask for what we think makes the most sense, which is why we constantly ask and desire earthly treasures even though Jesus says those things are fleeting and they're going to be destroyed. And we constantly chase influence and the praises of men even though Jesus says the kingdom is way greater and his rewards are far better. And all those things that we ask for that we think we want, that we think that, that we need, we ask for them because we think that they will fulfill something in us. Because there's always a deeper desire behind the thing we're asking for, right? Sometimes we don't recognize it at first, sometimes it's really obvious. Like sometimes we just ask for like, God, I just need a day off, like I need a day just to to not do anything and it's cuz I just I need rest and so we know that there's a deeper desire there and sometimes we're not even so sure what that deeper desire is but there's always something behind it. I mean think about it right now like what no matter how small or trivial it may seem just think right now what is it you want? Just think about what what do you want? What's the desire behind that? What are you hoping that that thing will fulfill for you? What problem do you think it will solve? What hole do you think it will fill in your heart? What fear do you think it will deliver you from? What do you think it will truly give you? And when we get down into that root level, that's where we can see some of what Jesus is calling us to ask for. See, we often pray for a relationship because we think it will fulfill our desire for intimacy. We pray for a new job because we think it will fulfill our desire for meaning. Or We pray for more money because we think that it will fulfill our desire for stability. But the problem isn't our desire for intimacy. It's our insistence that we know the best way to get it. Right? Like a problem isn't our desire for a meaningful life, it's our insistence we know the best way to achieve it. The problem isn't our desire for for stability or security, it's our insistence that we know the best way to secure it. And in our pursuit of these real things, these desires that are actually wired into us, we settle for lesser versions Temporary versions and ultimately destructive versions because we believe we know best. And then at most we go to God and we say, God, fulfill my plans. But God won't give you the serpent, He won't give you a rock. He offers something far greater. He offers the kingdom. And if we believed Jesus and what he says about our heavenly father, we would ask for far greater things. I'm reminded of the woman at the well. You can read about her in in John 4, but in it, Jesus goes and he meets this woman in the middle of the day. She's by herself, And he asks her for water, and she questions, like, why are you even talking to me? And Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Think about what he's saying there. If you knew who it is that you are talking to, you would ask for something far greater. When you think about chapter six, when we talked about money, Jesus, his, his point about money isn't that money is bad and it doesn't do anything. You can't do good with it. That's, that's how all the, um, the debates we get into and wrestling with it and be like, well, but there's still good in it and everything. That's not his point. His point is that money is puny. His point is that its ability, money's ability to fulfill is so small because anything you gain with it, it just falls apart and it will go away. It is so small to what the kingdom offers. However, its ability to lead our hearts astray is strong. So you think about it, money is both unable to fulfill what it promises, but very able to to destroy. That's a bad combination. And Jesus says you can't serve both. You can't serve two gods. And ultimately, we're left with this. When seeking the kingdom and when asking for whatever we desire, you cannot pursue what God has for you and what you want apart from God at the same time. You have to choose one. I'll say that again. You, you can't pursue what God has for you in the kingdom and pursue your own kingdom at the same time. It doesn't work. And so often when we pray, myself included, we're speaking out of both sides of our mouths. We're double agents in the kingdom. Right? We're saying we trust God and yet pursuing our own means of fulfillment, our own means of justice, our own means of righteousness. We're trying to live in two worlds. And so much of the frustration that I see, and I see it, and I feel it, and I feel it in my own heart, and I see it when I'm with people, and and I hear it as I hear people grieve and struggle, and all these things, and so often it's just we're trying to live in both kingdoms. We're trying to value both kingdoms. We're trying to have everything that God promises us, but also all the things that we want over here at the same time. And it doesn't work. The question is, which kingdom do you want? What he offers is an intimacy that doesn't fade after a breakup or a divorce or a death. He offers meaning that doesn't come and go with the envy and praises of our friends. He offers a stability that doesn't rise and fall with the national economy. He offers forgiveness that doesn't go away when you fall. And those things are better. And far from saying, haven't I given you enough already? God is saying, I have such greater things for you. That is a refrain you hear all through scripture that we are so slow to believe, I have such greater things. And when you have those things so securely, you be content. You become content in the smaller things. They lose their hold on you. Their, their promises to fulfill seem so puny. Now how do we do that? Well, I do want to say this. Here's one practical tip here in the middle. Start with those small things. Whatever those things that you are, that you want, that you think will fulfill you, that you want, no matter how trivial they seem, no matter how silly they seem, start with those things. You might say, wait, didn't you just say the problem is we're asking for small things? No, I said don't settle for small things. I mean, first of all, can we just acknowledge that for the alpha and the mega, the, the one who created everything with one voice, like one word, everything's small. Okay, Whatever you and I are struggling with, worried about, whatever, for him, everything is small. That doesn't mean it's unimportant. There's a difference. If you've ever dealt with a, a small child who is experiencing some kind of hurt or frustration, if you love that child, you have compassion on them, even though you know like what they're dealing with objectively may not be that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. That doesn't change how you feel towards them or your desire to comfort them or even your desire to try to fulfill their request if it's good for them. So start with those small things. When I say small things, I mean like parking spots small. Like, that's one of the things in the mocking way of like, oh, you're going to pray like God's going to open a parking spot. I pray for parking spots all the time. I'm old now. I'm lazy. I don't like to walk unless it's on my treadmill desk. And I pray for them. So there are times where I'm running late or whatever, and I just pray. And here's what usually happens. As I'm praying, God, give me a parking spot. God starts to shape my heart around things. And usually what happens, not always, but usually what happens, I either end up with a spot right next to the store or the absolute furthest spot I can possibly find. Because one way or the other, I'm, I'm receiving something from God, intimacy with Him. And all of a sudden, the parking spot doesn't typically matter anymore. So the answer is not to filter your requests and then bring your filtered, packaged request to God. Nor as children... Let it all out. Say it, tell him all the things that you want. Let him deal with it. Let him shape your desires in your heart. Maybe you want a lake house. And you're thinking, well, that's just that's selfish to ask for a lake house. No, well, maybe it is. I don't know. Not the Holy Spirit. But ask. If that's on your heart, if you desire that, then ask. Tell him. But ask, then why do, I, why do I want that lake house? What is it that I think that lake house will fulfill or give me? And be honest. Remember, you we don't approach God like a parent we're trying to manipulate by saying the right things to. Right? Like if you're a kid asking your parent for something, like you're not going to tell them all of your motives for why you're asking. I know I've got a lot of teenagers in here, and we all know this, right? Given like the knowing, glo- you don't tell them everything about why you want that thing, but God already knows. So tell him. And ask why, why, why do I really want this? What do I think it's going to fulfill? And in that prayer, he may reveal to you as you're talking with him that there are selfish, that it's selfish reasons or to escape from the world where he's planted you. And then, As he does that, he'll shape your heart and you'll find yourself actually thankful that he has not made that possible for you to get that lake house. Or you might find that you want rest. I hope that that's going to give me rest and a place to withdraw, a place for peace, a place that I can connect with God. And And he shows you what it means for him to be your peace. And as he does that, your trust or your hope in that lake house to fulfill that for you starts to lessen. Like what's happened is it no longer has the power it once had because you realize that lake house can't actually give me the thing that I desire. But it can be a great place to enjoy the peace Christ has already given you. And that peace is greater. And that's what we want. So doing that and going through that process, it will do all kinds of things. It'll reveal deeper desires. It'll confront false beliefs, the beliefs that earth is all we have or that earthly treasures are better or that the world depends on us to function or that the resurrection isn't real. Asking why, why do I want that? What do I hope it's going to do in me? Asking that to God and having that conversation with him rather than trying to have it over here separately and then coming to him with our finished product It gives us space for the Holy Spirit to speak and for us to hear him. It gives us space then for repentance if we're believing false things. Gives us space for God to build desire in our hearts that are greater for better things and greater things. And ultimately that leads to him giving us and us receiving those greater things which builds in us joy and peace and contentment despite any of our circumstances, certainly despite whether we get a lake house or not. It's just better. So it changes. It changes what we ask for. And the other thing is that believing who God is changes how we ask. I and mean, one of our big concerns is we don't want to treat God like some kind of cosmic genie. And if we're honest about our prayer life, not only do we sometimes approach God and we ask for things that aren't great for us, we also ask in kind of weird ways. I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about how you sound when you pray. I have. Maybe I'm just really introspective like that. Here's some of my favorites in my life. Like, there's one I call the birthday wish prayer. Like when you wish when they blow out the candles. It's kind of a, what could it hurt? Come on. Any of you ever wished, actually wished for the birthday candles? There's like four of you and the rest of you are liars. Whatever. Um, yeah. It's like well, I'm just gonna pray. Like, what could it hurt? This is kind of the afterthought prayer. It's like, you know, I've done everything I can do. Like, what could I, might as well just pray? Throw up a prayer. There's the aw shucks prayer. It's kind of the hedging our bets. Like, God, if it wasn't too much trouble, no big deal if you can't. Totally understand you got big things going on. You've already done so much for me. It's that kind of prayer. There's kind of a gross one, but a real one. I don't want to say you owe me, but like I've done... I look at all these things that I've done. Couldn't I get a little easier road here? Or, or the bargaining of like, if you do this, then I'll do. I'll, I'll make sure that I straighten up. I'll come to church. But maybe worst of all is the. I'm just not going to ask for anything. The now nah, I don't. I don't need anything. I'm good as if somehow that's holier. That's not. James 4 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. That got dark quickly. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, it turns out pretending not to need anything doesn't actually hide our desires. And apart from Christ, we pursue our own passions and our own kingdoms. So all of that, whether we're hedging our bets or negotiating or just not asking at all, it's all a cover for our own self-reliance, our own self-righteousness, our own pride. And that's not how one enters the kingdom. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We enter the kingdom like a child. It is the children who are the greatest. They're asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So part of that humbling is realizing, I don't know what's best. And the other part of that humbling is just to throw yourself into it and say, God, I'm going to tell you everything, and I trust you. Believing that you are the giver of all good gifts and that you are extravagantly generous. See, look at how he says, that's why he brings this up. Which one of you? If your son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, like how much more will God give good things to those who ask? But he doesn't say God, does he? He says, your father, how much more will your father? And think about how often Jesus is doing this through the Sermon on the Mount. You're worried? Your father has you. You want to know how to pray? Pray to your father. You want something? Ask your father. The key is not in our holy number of words or in the purity even of our asking or our track record in the week preceding our request. Our ask is rooted in this relationship. I am his child. He is my father. And he is a good father. Jesus is using here a technique that he uses quite a bit This common, it's kind of the how much more argument. Like if this is true, how much more is this greater thing true? It'd be kind of like if, like if you ever said, well, if Jay could do it, so if Jay could do it, how much more likely are you able to be doing it? That's something I actually heard this week. So, And rightly so. I get it, by the way. We're talking about God as a good father. Not everybody had a good father. It's a reality. Some of you may even have been given a serpent by your father. Or a rock. But you know it's wrong. And that's his point. He says, you who are evil know how to give good gifts. How much more does God? And similar way, he says about the worry passage, he's like, you're worrying about things, but look around you. Like, God takes care of all these things, and you're more valuable. Like, it's almost like a, a, it's kind of a mockery type thing, but it's not a mockery to make people feel bad. It's a mockery where you just be like, oh, come on. Like, there's a way to mock something that isn't, like, demeaning, but just to, like, be able to laugh at the ridiculousness of it. Like, if you've ever been startled or scared by a pet or an animal in the middle of the night. You, know, you wake up and you're half asleep or, half, or, or by a child. I mean, think about this. Like a child that, if you've ever woken up to a child, like right here, you're just like, and you realize for a sec like once you realize the situation, you're like, oh, that was silly. Like obviously my two-year-old can't harm me. Or can he? Look on his face. Right? So, but I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of idea. It's not like a mockery, like no one would make fun of you, like demean you for that. But there's a reality that once you see the reality of the situation, you're like, God, oh, that was silly. Like, why did, I, why did I worry about that? And that's what Jesus is doing. Like, you're worried about these things, but look around you. Like, come on, see reality so you can take a deep breath and go, oh, you're right. That is, that is silly. Look at how he feeds the birds and look at how he clothes the, the lilies, he, this, is, this is what he's doing. I think it's actually an underutilized strategy that I think we should employ more often, like kind of grieve with people, yes, but then don't be afraid to with, with their help to see, like, look, but look at how silly this actually is. It actually doesn't have any power. Not because the grief or the fear isn't real, but because God is so much bigger. I was just talking um, with someone about this, but the, the root, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the root of the, the history of devil costumes, like the little devil costumes for Halloween, with the, the idea that we get from the, the tail and the pointy tail and the horns and everything like that, it's actually created by Christians, which now it's funny because we get so wrapped up about it and freak out about it or whatever, but they created that and the whole idea was to mock the devil by dressing up little children in little like horned costumes by just looking at them and being like, come on. That's basically the power that Satan has. It's like a little toddler running around in a dumb costume. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable. But I can tell you, I've been in some pretty terrifying situations of spiritual warfare, but I've also laughed in the face of it. Not because I'm brave, because in the ranking, Of My house ranking of most, you know, the bravest people or bravest beings in my house, I'm number six. Just ahead of one of our cats. (laughs) The other one is much higher than a few of us. But that one, he's like a total coward, so I got him beat. (laughs) But that bravery, when I've walked into situations where I know there's dark, demonic stuff going on, it is not from my own Bravery. It's how big God is. And knowing that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. If you knew who you were talking to. And yet often we come to God wondering if he can answer. In Mark 9, there's a man who is possessed by a demon. And the disciples couldn't cast it out father was being was frustrated he thought surely Jesus disciples would be able to help but they can't and Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus asked his father how long has this been happening to him and father said from childhood and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him but if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us I just imagine what you'd be feeling as a father, as a parent, watching your child for years be possessed by a demon that is constantly trying to destroy him, and nobody can do anything. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This is who you're asking. The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the creator of the storm and the calmer of the storm, and the one who cast the demon out of this young man. It's actually, he's capable of far more, as Paul says, far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Like the problem isn't his ability. It is our understanding, our hearts, our faith. We think we know better, want what's better, and are more effective. We know that's not true. We believe, but we need help with our unbelief. And that happens by lifting our eyes to him. I think that the father when he asks Jesus that he says if you can he's so frustrated that it wasn't working that nobody else his disciples weren't able to help but what changes why does he say if you like i believe help my unbelief where does that come from i think it's because he just looks at him like notice how often in the gospels how often Jesus locks eyes with those that he's going to heal or perform a miracle and asks do you want to be healed Imagine how they must have felt. Imagine all the people they had sought healing from, all the places that had turned up empty. Imagine all the times they'd cried out in desperation. And now they find themselves face to face with the exact imprint of the nature of God, God in the flesh. Never before had they found they wanted something so pure. And never before had they believed so much that it would happen and they ask in faith. Why? Because now, standing, held in his gaze, they see reality and the thing they're asking for, that illness, that deliverance seems so small compared to him. The ask seems so trivial. Not because the pain or the desire isn't real but because the power of it doesn't seem so scary anymore. Part of the reason why Mother's Day is emotional for me is that part of my story is I lost my mom to cancer years ago. And I prayed for many people to be healed in my life, but never quite like praying for your mom. And I prayed that she would be healed, but I asked myself why I wanted that. And as I thought about her missing out on time with my kids, I confronted the false belief that the earth is all that we have. And I was flooded with assurances that she would not miss a thing, that Jesus would restore everything, that she would know my kids and my kids would know her. And I remember in praying in that process, believing that God was saying, physical healing is not the road I have for her. Let me tell you, it did not dull my desire for her to be healed. And it did not numb the pain of grief when she passed. But I learned a fraction of what it means. Death, where is your power? Death, where is your sting? That pain was there. But in the shadow of my king, it was so small. Only... A huge God could make something like that feel like a light momentary affliction. And many of you would testify to that truth who have been in even deeper pits, deeper pain and deeper, deeper grief. And you've known and you've learned what I'm talking about. Where the fear of hearing no is gone because the one who may say no is good and has even greater things in store. And the joy of hearing yes is amplified because the one who says yes is so good, and he has even greater things in store. Turns out that asking for too much isn't what treats God like a genie. It's our lack of faith that the sovereign God of the universe is who he says he is, fulfills his promises faithfully, and loves to give good gifts to his children. That's what turns him into a genie. And so that's my charge to you. Do you believe that? Do you want it? By the way, this isn't the only time Jesus says this. He says these things like, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If, and in case they didn't understand it fully, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He's doubling down on it. He said this more than once. The question is, do you believe him? Do you want that? If you want that, then let the king order your heart around the kingdom. Give up your kingdom. Seek his first. Things that are bigger than what we see here. Treasures that are beyond what we have here. And see him. And focus not first on even what you're asking for, or how you're asking for, but who you're asking And become fixated on him and see his glory. And know that who you're asking is the world's best gift giver. Does anybody know somebody like that, by the way? It's Mother's Day. It's a dangerous time to ask. Somebody who's just an incredible gift giver. It's like whatever you could possibly imagine to ask them for, you you don't even want to ask. Because whatever they're going to come up with is better than whatever you would have asked for. Anybody know somebody like that? Could you introduce me? That would be great. (laughs) I actually, have my sister in law is like that. She's phenomenal at giving gifts. That's kind of what God is like. Jesus spends a lot of time basically saying, Why would you think God would withhold anything from you? Would you look around? What do you think he's not capable of? What do you think he would hold back on? The one who feeds the birds of the air. The one who clothes the lilies of the field. The one who knows and numbers every hair on your head. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See the picture the Bible paints is of a God who's extravagantly generous not withholding even his own son, endlessly created, preparing that which cannot even be imagined for us, and perfectly sovereign, able to do far more abundantly than anything we could ask or imagine or think. We think it's holier to treat him as if he's given us enough already, probably wants us to live some kind of subdued life and probably can't help it. If he, if he could, he probably wouldn't want to do it anyway. Come on. Or we think it's about settling, about just getting rich, and like, oh, if I ask God for a bunch of money, as if that's all he has to offer? Come on. It's silly. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What do you want? Ask him. Let him use your requests to gently confront false beliefs or incomplete desires. Let the one who loved you before you could love him tell you yes or no. Look at him and believe that he has something far greater than you could ever ask or imagine. Don't edit yourself. Tell him everything. What do you think that you could say to him that would make him turn for you, he who did not withhold his own son? This is our good father. So spend your days lifting your eyes up to the king and let your heart be shaped around the kingdom. Then seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. And remember, you are a child, his child, whose heavenly father is the best gift giver in the world. And ask for whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, that you are who you say you are, that you are a good father, and you love us, and you are with us. So, Lord, we, we just confess We have not asked you for the things that you've even offered freely to us because our imaginations are so small. Our desires are so small. But God, you are great. You have greater things for us. So Lord, I pray. I pray for us to have prayer lives where we ask you for the deeper things in our lives, not just the surface things that we think will deliver, but the things we truly desire and that we would trust you in the best way to go about receiving what we truly desire. Because we know, God, that your will for us is a life full of joy and peace, is an abundant life, and you know the best way to go about securing that for us. And you've already secured it in Jesus. And so for those, God, here in this room who don't know you and are still at this point right now saying, I, I've never trusted in you, Lord, I pray that they would. I pray their hearts would be moved and maybe for the first time they would call out to you and say, forgive me. I've been pursuing my own kingdom. I don't want that anymore. I want the kingdom that you are offering. I want your forgiveness for being a rebel against your kingdom. And I want to be made new. Lord, thank you for all that you have done and are doing and will do you our good Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.